All right, let's, let's continue here as a, as a church family in our study. Uh, thank you for being here. Uh, thank you if you are watching online. It's always good to, to have that available. This morning, we are continuing in our study in the book of Daniel, and the book kind of takes a turn. So the first six chapters are stories, amazing stories, kind of the top stories you share, especially in like a children's church or something like that, and all these different elements to it. These next six chapters are different. The whole book takes a turn, and we begin to have pictures and, and descriptions of prophecy. Now, when we think about biblical prophecy, one of the ways that we see kind of this, one, one vantage point you can have when you look at it is to think about uh, something like a summary. So, for instance, in sports, in baseball, I like baseball, I played baseball, I like watching baseball. I actually have, I watch, I watch old games that are on replay with baseball, like I'm that guy. That's how I knew I became a dad when I started watching historic games that I knew how they ended and I still wanted to rewatch them. And recently, I have this, this, this baseball channel on our TV. I was watching, uh, this channel loves to portray this one game, 2004, the Boston Red, Six, uh, Red, Boston Red Sox are playing the Yankees. And uh, even if you don't know baseball, you probably know the Red Sox and the Yankees. So they're playing and it's this famous game because the Yankees are just crushing them throughout this series. The winner goes to the World Series. The game before, Yankees won, I think 19 to one or something, right? Like just, man, this, this team is clearly gonna win. Red Sox go home. You haven't won the World Series in hundred years. Like go home, no, we, don't, we don't want you, right? And so game four, Yankees are winning all the way to the bottom of the ninth, which is the last inning of a game, if you don't know the sport. And the Yankees have this best pitcher. He became Hall of Famer, Mar Mariano Rivera. And he's pitching. It's like, well, this is going to be a win. This is how it is. Well, no kidding. Red Sox actually score a run to tie the game. They come back. They win a couple, a couple of innings later. They score the final win. So they win that game. It leads to them winning the rest of the series, which has never happened before when you were down 3 nothing, and they came back to win the next four games. They go to the World Series. They win uh, the World Series for the first time ever. Anyway, that whole scenario, that is summarized by this, what's called a line score in baseball. And so it, it, this is a really quick summary of this famous game. Like if you know baseball, if you're a historian of baseball and stuff, you'd see this game and you're like, your heart would be moved because you already like know what's, what this portrays. You don't know a bunch of details at all, but you do know it's just kind of this. In fact, most line scores, uh, well, yeah, yeah, this even tells you at the bottom here who the winning pitcher is, who the losing pitcher is, and kind of how the breakdown is. But you don't know all the different details. You don't know when things were hit, um, how the, a whole bunch of other elements that are somewhat portrayed in the box score, which is another thing, somewhat portrayed in the whole breakdown of the summary, but you'd really have to watch it from start to finish to see it, to feel it, maybe even uh, replay when you were there, that, that kind of thing. So, when I think about biblical prophecy, I'm reminded of a line score in that you see major details. Uh, you also see who wins, who loses. In the case of biblical prophecy, Satan loses, Jesus wins. And you, you get to see different things, but you don't, necessarily, you don't always know the exact names of people or the exact dates of things. And that's a little bit of what we see here in, well, very much what we see in Daniel chapter 7. This is a chapter that has been described by many theologians as the most important chapter 
in Old Testament prophecy. It, uh, several, this, this is the defining chapter in the book of Daniel, which is fascinating because you'd think it's all the other ones, Daniel and the lion's den. Well, that's a big one, but not compared to seven because chapter seven gives us a timeline of history of what is going to happen in the future uh, for Daniel in the time when that happened, um, you know, 500-ish, 400-ish BC. And, and uh, also, we get to look back at what has already occurred but then he even has a prophetic vision of what will happen in the future that has yet to happen for us today, including what we describe as the Antichrist and the end times and Jesus being victorious. So all this is portrayed in seven. I don't know how long this will take. I didn't practice it. So we're going to just work through it. And if I have to stop, we will. But there's a lot. And it's so good. Uh, I just want to get started. So when we look at these kinds of passages, I think that these words serve three major functions for us as Christians. First of all, they serve to encourage the believer that a greater day is ahead. That's wonderful for us in that you can be in great despair just in the moment, or you could have like the world in chaos, and we can still remember that God is in charge and that there is greater ahead, right? So the one, there's that encouragement. Secondly, there's a strengthening of the believer to endure to the end. We are challenged by that in part with this passage, but then definitely parallel passages, and you'll see that when we get to it. And then thirdly, we, we are reminded, the, the believers are reminded that God is true to his promises and his prophecies. And so if what he declared to be true, and we can already see it, it a lot has already happened. And if those things happen, which they have, then we know for certain that what else has yet to happen will occur. So with that said, Daniel 7, if you have your Bibles turned there, you might even, if you have your paper Bible, you might even want to use a phone Bible and have several, because we're going to look at a lot of content today. And uh, it's going to be one of those good days. Uh, hopefully you had breakfast and uh, you, you'll need, I'm serious, you're going to need to just lock in. So Daniel 7 starts off this way. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. So if you're even paying attention in Daniel, you'll know we're, gonna, we're, we're kind of skipping back now in the timeline of a couple chapters ago when Belshazzar was king. And uh, Daniel's just reminding us, like, this is something that happened a while ago, and he's writing it now at this point in chapter 7. So in the first year, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared this, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. All right, now we have four different beasts. And I'll explain this more, but each one of these are different kingdoms that occur. So the first beast was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up off the ground or from the ground and, and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. Now, if, if, you, if you weren't paying attention in a couple weeks ago, this parallels chapter two when King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of four, four or five, you know, different, four different kingdoms, but then depending on how you look at the feet and everything, and then a stone comes in and knocks down this statue. This passage parallels that, and it's one of those valuable things of having dual uh, prophecies that complement one another, helps us to fully understand what we're looking at here. And so this 
most people, I mean, just across the board, so many that you'd say, this is the working interpretation of it. You have a handful of outliers out there. Everyone's always trying to write a book about something, but this is probably the way you would interpret this, that this kingdom, this king is Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar, in fact, if you remember, he had that episode where he began to, um, he, he lost his, his like mental faculties and began to uh, act like a beast for all those years until he humbled himself and God gave him the ability to reason again. And so they, even that language here about this lion and then was given two feet like a man and his a mind of a man was given to it likely is describing Nebuchadnezzar even more specifically than just the kingdom itself. So anyway, first beast is like a lion. This is Babylon which Daniel at the time was living in the kingdom of Babylon. He would have been like, okay, I know Babylon. What else is next? The second beast, verse five, behold, another beast, the second one was like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, arise, devour much flesh. Well, friends, this is likely the Medo-Persia empire. This empire became the largest at the time. Of any. I mean, they just went through and took over every country. In fact, the three ribs possibly, or I'd say even likely, reflect their major conquests. One over Babylon, also over a country, Lydia, and then also a country of Egypt. Now, the, verse 6 has the next beast. And after this, I looked and behold another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. Well, this beast, this leopard, this parallels the conquest of Greece. And we will learn far more about Greece later in Daniel. There is a lot of content regarding Alexander and the work that he did and the conquest he did, which came hundreds of years after Daniel had this vision. But the, even the four commanders, or it says the, the four heads, they likely are the four commanders that take over after Alexander. And um, again, we'll learn more about that. A lot of that is in chapter 8. And I thought I would do it, but there's so much in this chapter. We're going to just stick with seven. You can read ahead later if you'd like. All right, so there you have these three, different, these three different beasts at this time. But then there's this fourth one. And the fourth one is different than the others in unique ways. And that's what leads us to a lot more other explanation. So verse seven says, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had 10 horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. Okay, so... And at, at, the, at the initial set here, this beast is the Roman Empire. So you have those three. You have Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Roman Empire. Uh, other than the Babylon Empire, the other three come in the future from this vision. And so it's a great description and timeline that Daniel receives over what world empires will be happening. Now, when you think about the Roman Empire, one historian wrote it this way. He said, Rome possessed a power and longevity unlike anything the world had ever known. Nations were crushed under the iron boot of the Roman legions. Its power was virtually irresistible, and the extent of its influence surpassed the other three kingdoms. So, 
this <clears throat> Roman Empire is great and strong, and these were the four major spots, or, or four major empires, right? Well, what's unique about this is that all of a sudden there's like these horns, and this little horn rises up, and Daniel's very curious on this, and begins to be kind of terrified with what he's seeing. He's seeing something very evil, something very diabolical, and he has questions on it. And we're going to look into those, but before we get to it, I have a handful of other things. First of all, there's a picture of a, an artist drew this up, uh, just an example. We're not sure what that fourth beast actually looked like. It was something so different than the other creatures. The other ones were clear enough that he knew, like, the animal it was like, you know, like a bear. Uh, this fourth one, he's like, I don't, you know, it doesn't even tell us what kind of animal it's like. So that artist drew it like that. And here we have just this... Uh, awful kind of dream, vision of what is to be. Now, the passage takes a quick break before it explains a little more about the little horn and its work there to describe who our God is. And this is an incredibly important element when it comes to prophecy. Maybe even you're listening and maybe there's a little fear that might be stirring up within you or uncertainty. Uh, we all respond to chaos and destruction in different ways and stuff. Well, let us remember that the enemy is defeated, and that he, while he will have his moments, our Savior is the one on the throne of, of it all. And so when we read this section here, we're about to read about God the Father and the Son and their interactions. It's a really cool description of just two out of the three. You have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and two, of the, two out of the three interacting in this moment. It's pretty interesting, and it parallels a few other passages. So I want us to take some time just to, to, to reflect on, to, to sit in, to saturate our hearts on God's throne chariot, because it's described in Daniel 7. And if you skip this part just to get to all the fantastical stuff, I think you'll actually do yourself a disservice because you'll, you'll, you'll get, you get kind of a um, flustered, like spiritually flustered. You're not anchoring your heart the way Daniel was with his vision. So the vision continues. After seeing all those beasts, it says the vision, uh, he's at verse nine, as I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. Now the ancient of days is a term used for, uh, it, it designates God's throne and his judgment. And in this moment, and in the very next one, which is just in a few verses, it's referring to God the Father. A little later in the same chapter, Ancient of Days is used regarding the return of the Ancient of Days, and that would be about Jesus. Same name, and that, that happens a lot when it comes to names for God, but I'm just helping you to see this. So you have the Ancient of Days. He took his seat. His clothing was, what, was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Now, this is describing very similar to what we see in uh, that relationship in Revelations chapter 4 and 5, in which you have a portrayal of the throne room of God. And then you have uh, the question, who is worthy to open this scroll? And the lamb arrives and he is worthy to open the scroll. Very similar in that you have this relationship between uh, the, the thrones and, and, and God the Father and the Son. Well, this same passage also parallels Ezekiel 1. And I want to read for you Ezekiel 1. And, and, and you could read the whole chapter on your own. I'm going to just read three verses for you because I want you to see as well that these, these descriptions, and the, the, again, these are such a different genre of biblical literature than 
Jesus was in the boat with the disciples. I mean, that's like a totally different kind of feel. Even the Psalms, the Lord is my, is steadfast love. Okay, that kind of resonates with our heart in, a, in, a, in another side. This language is like, uh, some of it's metaphorical. It's symbolic in certain ways. Some of it is literal. So it really pulls certain things from us that are different than the other sorts of genres in scripture. Well, Ezekiel 1 is no different. It says this, and starting in verse 26, and above the expanse over their heads was like the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance and upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were the appearance of fire. And there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, right, the rainbow. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. So that's Ezekiel's encounter with the throne room of God. Daniel's is what he described here. All right, so that's, um, that's what we're having. That's the context here. That's what he's seeing. Now words are beginning to be spoken. And so verse 11 Daniel says this, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I think one of the best ways just to summarize what that's describing is how each of these kingdoms were folded into the next. And so uh, a general understanding and, and way of rulership that was not for God and for his work, those were playing into every kingdom that took over the next. Anyway, it's verse 13, I'm gonna continue. There's more to it, but I don't wanna get into that stuff. There's good stuff coming. So uh, verse 13, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Well, this isn't a different character here. And this is where I would describe this as Jesus. And then you have the ancient of days, the father in this moment. So the son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion, as an everlasting dominion, which shall not be, pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Okay, so unlike the earthly kings who misruled their kingdoms with idolatry and paganism, the Son of Man will rule as God intends. His sovereign rule, it was portrayed, if you recall, with the stone in chapter 2, with Daniel chapter 2, where Nebuchadnezzar has this dream of a big statue and a stone comes in and just takes the whole statue out, all the different kingdoms and the different parts of the metals and, 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 and stuff that were lined up there in the statue, this stone is able to demolish them all and settle the score among them all. Now, this passage is one of those unique ones that is mentioned by Jesus in the New Testament. And I want to read for you this because some people say, you know, listen, Jesus never claimed to be God. And I'll tell you, he, he, he may not have said words that you would want Jesus to say, but what he said about who he was was clearly that he declared he was God. And listen to this out of Matthew 26, starting verse 63. We have it on the screens. 
Jesus remained silent. Then the high priest said to him, I demand in the name of the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the son of God. Jesus replied, you have said it. And in the future, you will see the son of man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. His reference to being the son of man here, look what it led to do. Then the high priest tore his clothing to show his horror and said, blasphemy. Why do we need other witnesses? You have all heard his blasphemy. What is your verdict? Well, they shouted, guilty. He deserves to die. Then they began to spit in Jesus' face. They beat him. They, they punched him in the face, right? They slapped him. They're saying, prophesy to us, Messiah. Who hit you that time, right? We, we know from another, he's blindfolded. And so they're punching him and like, uh, who hit you there, right? If you're such a prophet, who's punching you now? Well, Jesus, he declared he was God and it infuriated those who were the religious leaders. All right, well, let's continue in Daniel 7. We're like halfway done. Whew. I need a, like a, I need a water break. I need a, a timeout, right? That kind of thing. Uh, verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there. So he's in his vision here. He approaches someone who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth let me just pause here real quick to mention this when it comes to prophecy the bible tends to interpret it for itself like right with us so you don't have a lot of guessing games and that's super important with prophecy usually you have um, the the most the, the, the most common denominator interpretation is usually the best one to work with, unless there is something totally kind of out of nowhere that's clearly symbolic and requires kind of a jump. But usually scripture interprets it for itself in the moment or even with another parallel passage. So good. Because you might hear other people say, hey, this is, this is like a... Um, this is, this is what this prophecy means. And then they start talking about like aliens and stuff. You're like, no, no, that's, that's not at all. Like, so here you have, if you didn't keep reading this chapter, you might've said, hey, those beasts are something totally inappropriate and not true at all. So we're already told what these are. Verse 18 says, but the saints of the most high shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. So let me read those two verses together again, because it, they, they go well. It says, these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the most high shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Again, this is a baseline when it comes to this kind of prophecy and understanding the end times and all sorts of things. God's kingdom lasts forever and we reign with him. And so think about Revelation 22.5. Oh, thanks, Leo. I was kind of joking. I don't actually need water. I just, I'm just kind of like... Jittery, I guess. Maybe a little coffee. So, Revelation twenty-two five says, "There will be no more. There will be no more night." This is talking about the the future reign with Christ. They will not need the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. My challenge to you actually would be if you're if you're re hearing all this and feeling maybe even a little nervous in a moment because we're going to get into like persecution and stuff. If you are feeling that way, maybe maybe read for yourself Revelation and go down to chapters 21 and 22 and and read that this week and allow yourself to be reminded of what our future residence is. 
And uh, it's, it's a wonderful blessing for your own heart. Well, verse 19 starts to get into the stuff that can make us nervous. Uh, because we read that Christians start getting slaughtered, all right? So verse 19 says, Then I desire to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. You know, so often in Scripture, including in the Psalms, you read stuff like, uh, God was before me and behind me, God protected me, God shielded me. You know, we went to battle, David takes down Goliath, you got all these like, Israel, uh, Israelite kings who just did incredible things when they feared God. This is one of these moments where we read about where God allows there to be a season of trial and tribulation, unprecedented beforehand. This little horn that we'll talk through, it made war with the saints and was taking them down. Not, not ultimately, not their, not their eternal residence, but here on earth. When we think about this little horn, this is where we take a pause from Daniel to look at other passages that are parallel passages. And Revelation gives us wonderful content and a couple others too. And, and this is the, not, um, but most people would, uh, uh, most theologians would agree with what I'm sharing with you. Not everyone does just because of when it comes to what does it actually mean? You have different people landing in different places. But what I'm sharing with you is the general, traditional view on this matter that I think holds up really well, at least as a, this is probably what this means. You can always kind of, uh, I don't know, dance a little bit in the other places, the, the, the outliers and the fringe interpretations, if you're curious. But I, will, I, I think this, this really holds up well. And so this little horn is also known as the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2.3. It's also described as the Antichrist in 1 John 2.18, and it is the beast in Revelation 13. So Revelation 13 tells us about a beast. I have for you starting in verse 5, but this is so good. Let's just start in verse 1, because I want you to see the, the parallels here. It says, and I saw a beast, Revelation 13, I saw a beast rising out of the sea with 10 horns and seven heads with 10 diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth was like a lion. And to it, the dragon gave power and his throne and great authority, the dragon being Satan. Um, just a, a quick side note here. Even these different character, uh, the animals that were named, it's kind of a, it's, it's a summation of all these different kingdoms in a certain way in which the beast is like, he's just got all these different components. It, 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 is, a, it is a grand portrayal of something fierce. Verse 3 in this same section, one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? All right, so now we're coming to verse 5, which I have for you on the screen. It says, and the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise 
authority for 42 months or three and a half years. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God. The same sort of language is described about the little horn that we were just reading a moment ago. Blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name was not or has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb, everyone who wasn't in that, right, was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Oh, I just kept reading. Yeah, there we go. Okay, so, and you can read more if, if you'd like. Um, in fact, I don't have it on, on the words, but if you just went down just to the next verse at the very end, it says, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Even as the apostle John wrote Revelation, he, he's reading this and, and writing this out, and it's like, Listen, don't be terrified with what I just wrote. It's a call for endurance of the saints. And with that, this message of persecution by the beast should not take us off guard if we encounter that. One thing we've talked about before when we did a study in Revelation two years ago or other passages, there's always persecution. There's always trials. Um, there, there are different moments in history in which you have characters who are incredibly fierce and they're, they're almost like... A, uh, uh, foreshadowing of the beast who will come one day. And so even if there was something that were to happen that would be grand and just uh, and awful regarding persecution, if it's not the Antichrist himself, it could still be a, a moment where it shows us what the Antichrist is like you know, in, in certain ways. But with that said, Matthew 24, Jesus is saying this when he's talking about the end of times. And he says, then, uh, in starting in verse 9, then they will deliver you up to, be, uh, to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus talks through this, and I'm going to read that passage at length more, I think, next week, because it parallels, again, some of the end time stuff. We talk, when we learn a little bit about how, um, how this beast is a greater fulfillment and the Antichrist uh, over a, a historical character that was in the future to Daniel, but in the past for us, that happened you know, in, the, in the BC era. And so... We have that, those words from Jesus. Similarly, Peter says this in 1 Peter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And then a little farther in 1 Peter 4, starting in verse 19, Peter says this, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, let them entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So this sort of suffering is something that is experienced by all believers to a, to a certain extent. But this moment that we're describing here in this moment of history, biblical history, this is a unique one in which you have the Antichrist just... just slaying everyone and uh, who, who's a follower of Christ. And this is why I would suggest to you, and, and, and not just me, several other theologians, this is why the words out of Revelation 
5, 6. When the fifth seal is opened, this is what provides kind of a context for the urgency that the slain saints are saying. So in Revelation 6, starting in verse 9, it says, When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of all who had been martyred for the word of God and for being faithful in their testimony. They shouted to the Lord and said, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge the people who belong to this world and avenge our blood for what they have done to us? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and they were told to rest a little longer until the full number of their brothers and sisters, their fellow servants of Jesus, who, would, who, who were to be martyred, had joined them. Um, so anyway, so there's just a kind of this portrayal and this picture of the saints who are killed, and then there is a uh, the, the, the shedding of blood, frankly, from the enemy. Now, Daniel's vision continues here. So, so it's, uh, if you recall just a moment ago, verse 21, the, the enemy, uh, the, the, the little horn, he's just, you know, going to town. And then verse 22 says, until the ancient of days came, this would be Jesus, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Again, don't get too nervous about the work of destruction when the outcome, the true outcome, the final say, the final word is Jesus's kingdom. Revelation 19 gives us a picture of what this looks like when judgment is given for the saints and the times come when the saints possess the kingdom and the ancient of days when he arrives, when he returns. Listen to Revelation 19, 11 to 16. Then I saw heaven open and the white horse was standing there. Its rider was named faithful and true for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head many were, uh, there were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. The armies of heaven, dressed in the finest of pure white linen, followed him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God, the, the Almighty, like juice flowing from a winepress. On his robe... At his thigh was written this title, King of Kings, King of all kings, and Lord of all lords. Okay, so like we have, again, parallel passages that help us to understand a little bit more timeline, filling out a little more. Now, the, the person, we're not told, I don't think, who Daniel's talking to here. This other person, like it's probably an angel, just in light of how the other chapters are, tells us a little more. And this is, we're starting to wrap up. We're starting to wrap up. Yeah, we're near the end. And he says this, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it into pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise. And I'll just pause here. To, well, I'll finish the sentence and then we'll, and we'll talk. And it says, And another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. I'll read the next verse. It just keeps going. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times of the law and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times and half a time. Often that's translated as three and a half years. Okay, so... Or not translated, but like uh, interpreted as three and a half years. Again, this is sort of the third, if I'm tracking right, the third explanation of the horn dynamic and the fourth kingdom and ten horns arising out of it. 
most people take this, and there's, there are different views on this, and some of them are good, some of them really are bad. Probably the more traditional view that I wanna just give you as a, as a baseline, and then we can look at some of the other ones in the future weeks, if it seems helpful. But the traditional viewpoint is this, that a, the fourth beast is symbolic of Rome and the Roman Empire, and then after the Roman Empire, there are uh, sort, of, sort of this uprising or something, some sort of thing like out of the Roman Empire in which there are 10 horns or 10 kings that come forth out of this beast. So some view this as different kingdoms or nations, possibly actually 10 nations, or even um, if 10 is not specific, like in the exact number, it could just be a strong whole group of them that come up out of the old Roman Empire. And this federation's dominion will immediately occur before the return of Christ, uh, like, like in the scope of world history. And the empire, it will be destroyed by the return of Christ. And so that is one take on that. And maybe you hear that and you're like, oh, I'm reminded of certain Hollywood movies I've seen before. And like sometimes they portray it that way. Daniel predicts in light of his, his vision here, you know, he's, he's talking through this and he's describing this obscure ruler, which I would say that that phrase, the little horn helps us, the adjective little is really helpful because a lot of people are like, hey, look at that really prominent horn. Well, you know what? That prominent ruler is probably not what we're seeing here. This is saying a little horn, it's a little more obscure, maybe somebody who doesn't have what you would expect there to be. Well, that little horn will be brilliant. It'll have eyes like a man. It will be arrogant. Uh, it'll be having a mouth speaking arrogant things. And when he comes into his rulership, there will be three kings who will try to defy him and they will be struck down. And then all the other kingdoms, you know, if the 10 is specific, the others well, if he's one, then three, so there'd be six others, they would all just kind of come alongside and establish this new empire. Well, this message for Daniel is like, holy cow, this is quite the thing. But let's remember the enemy does not get the final say. And so I want to read for you here what happens. And, and I'm going to, we're going to kind of stop here. The next chapter actually repeats this in some ways. And so we'll talk about it with kind of another perspective. And then there's more of this with the later chapters of Daniel as well. So we'll kind of keep going through this in a different angle. But I wanted to give you a whole bunch at once. So the rest of Daniel 7 says this, But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Right? Like that's the end of the vision here. And then verse 28, it's just a summary or not summary, but a final sentence here. Here's the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. So friends, you might read this and think, this little horn's coming, it's gonna rise up, it's gonna like stomp things out, saints are gonna get killed. Yeah, that is gonna happen. But there is not the fin that's not the, the final thing that occurs. And uh, death and evil and chaos is not the period, right? It's Jesus Christ. So let me give you two more verses just to summarize this whole thing and, uh, and then we'll wrap up. Actually, Maddie, you and the team, you guys can come on up here um, because 
You can. Revelation 21 says this in verses 22 and 23. I saw no temple in the city, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates the city, and the Lamb is its light. And another passage that describes the rule of Jesus, Philippians 2, 9 to 11. Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. These passages describe, again, the final say. And with all this, working through all this, three functions are totally like brought out for us as believers. And I said at the very beginning, we are encouraged that a greater day is ahead no matter how bad it gets. We are strengthened to endure to the end. And we are reminded that God is true to his promises and his prophecies. So these things will occur. But we can continue to press on. So, uh, oh wow, I wanted to just keep talking, but I, I can't. So I, I will just stop. If you would like to talk more, talk with me and we'll go from there. I might even post something later this week. Um, and then we'll just pick it up next week in chapter eight, all right? Uh, let me pray for you.